God's word again to Numbers. Today, Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32. Uh, Today, the account of two tribes uh, that request the privilege of settling outside of the land of Canaan uh, and how Moses and the leaders of Israel dealt with that. Numbers chapter 32, we're going to read uh, the entire chapter, 42 verses today. You can find that if you haven't yet on your uh, cart Bibles uh, on page 140. Uh, before we read this word together, let's go to the Lord and seek his blessing through prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, you who wrote this word, gave it to us through holy men of old who were carried along by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us grace to read these words, to mark and learn to inwardly digest, so that we may take them into our hearts and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you have sent him to be our Savior and sacrifice. Help us to trust him and to press on to what you have promised in the Lord Jesus Christ for all of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 32. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sabim, Nabo, and Baon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. Our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants 
of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do what you've promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will pass over, every man who is armed for war, before the Lord to battle, as my Lord orders. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. The people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. And Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with its territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. And the people of Gad built Dibon, Ataroth, Eror, Atroth Shofan, Jazer, Jogbaha, Beth Nimrah, and Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. The people of Reuben built Heshbon, Eliela, Kiriathiam, Nabo, and Baal-Maon, their names were changed, and Sibma. And they gave other names the cities that they built. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havoth-Jer. And Noba went and captured Kenneth and its villages and called it Noba, after his own name. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, you already know the conventional wisdom tells you that if life gives you lemons, you should make lemonade. Uh, But what if life gives you livestock? Scratch that. What if the Lord gives you livestock? Lots and lots and lots of livestock. And then he leads you into a land filled with fertile pastures and grassy plains. Well, what do you do then? Would it be so bad just to settle down, just to keep your herds and your family where the Lord has landed you? Would it be so awful just to stop there, even if it meant dwelling outside the land of God's promise? Numbers 32 is one of those chapters that can be hard to get a handle on. 
Maybe as we read it, your mind went to all the places that my mind went this week when I read this passage. On Monday, I read Numbers 32, and my first thought was, man, what has gotten into Moses? It seems on the surface that Reuben and Gad are making a reasonable request, right? They have animals. The land of, uh, uh, beyond the Jordan is ideal for animals, and it seems like a no-brainer. But at the sound of their voice, Moses comes unglued. He says not only are they being sinfully selfish, but their selfishness will lead to the downfall of the entire nation. And at first I wondered, maybe Moses is a little bit sensitive. And then as I read, the more and more I read, I began to see that Moses is right. There is terrible danger in allowing two whole tribes simply to opt out of God's plan for his people. There is an incredible, dangerous arrogance in saying, you know what the Lord has promised? I don't need that because I already have something else that's pretty much just as good. So I began to realize that Reuben and Gad were in the wrong, and that didn't help much. Because if it's wrong for two tribes to settle outside the land, why does the chapter end with, Two tribes, two and a half tribes actually, settling outside the land. You notice that by verse 32, that's what they're doing. All the leaders of the congregation are gathered together. They're invoking the name of Yahweh, and they're saying, yes, one-sixth of the nation can settle over there, and the rest of us will go in that direction. So if you like neat, tidy little passages with, uh, with clean moral uh, reasons and lessons behind it, this one leaves you unsatisfied. And again, I think it does show us God's people living in the same place that we live. Obviously not geographically, but spiritually speaking. Struggling with the same things that we struggle with. Think about it, the situation east of the Jordan was one that you face all the time. It is the tension between what God has said is best and what he actually seems to be giving you. It's the struggle to make sense of what God has promised when we're already surrounded by what he's providing. I think it's far easier to think up uh, some negative examples of how this tension plays out. You can, you can think of them in your own life, perhaps. The Lord makes a promise. He says that he is the one who keeps covenant, steadfast love for generations. That's his word. As you look in the generations of your family, it doesn't seem like the Lord is giving you that. Instead, it seems like he's giving you a grown child that wants nothing to do with the faith they were raised in. So we have what God has promised, and then we have what he's provided. Or the Lord has said that by his Holy Spirit, he will give all of his people a new heart, new affections, new desires, new sanctified, purified joy in the Lord. That's what he says he'll give. But all too often in your experience, your heart for God feels stagnant rather than sanctified. As I said, it's easier to come up with negative examples. But we live much of our lives in the tension between what God has promised and what it looks like he's providing for us. And that's where the tribes of Reuben and Gad were living. Except they didn't struggle with thinking that God's provision had fallen short. They struggled with thinking that what God had already given them, well, that was good enough. That was good enough. 
They struggled with thinking that God's promises were optional so long as they had enough of the good things of this life. So let's take those negative examples and rethink them a little bit, shall we? The Lord says he will give covenant steadfast love for generations, but you know there are some parents who say, I don't really need my kids to follow the Lord. I don't need them to be fanatical about their faith. I just want them to grow up as good, moral people. I just want them to become people that find what makes them happy, become good neighbors and good parents. That's enough for me. The Lord promises a new heart to all his people, but you know there are people in the pew who are content with just enough religion to make them feel good about their past, to make them a little hopeful for the future. There are people who seem to be content just to come week after week in the hope that they'll find nice, comforting thoughts about nice, comforting things. That's enough, maybe. And actually, there are times in our own lives when we refuse the best things that God has promised because we're content already with what we have. I realize that this is a very long way of getting into this text. But you need to understand that this is where Reuben and Gad, where these two tribes were living. By all outward accounts, God had given them things that were good. Very good. Abundant blessings according to this life. But he had also given them the promise of something far better. And just like you do, they lived in the tension between what God has said was best and what they were tempted to think was good enough. Well, the passage itself has, has three big chunks in it. It begins with uh, a request from two of these tribes. And then in response, Moses comes back with a rebuke. And finally, the whole congregation arrives at a covenant compromise. That's how we're going to approach this today. A request, a rebuke, and a covenant compromise. Now, the request is straightforward. The two tribes, Reuben and Gad, gather the leadership of Israel, and they propose, verse 5, they say, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. You know, so often our problem as we read the scriptures is that the Bible doesn't do what we want the Bible to do. And here I think what we want the Bible to do is a little bit of psychologizing. We want this scripture to, to peel back the layers of the onion and to show us what's in the heart of these people. We want to know their motivations. We want to know what they were after or maybe what they were hiding. We want to know if they were, uh, if they were fearful or ambitious or selfish or lazy. And the text doesn't tell us, actually. We get some of those details later from Moses' response. We get some of that, but when the tribes make their request, it seems like nothing more than a logical solution to a barely logistical problem. That's it. And that itself, actually, is an important detail. Perhaps you remember, you probably don't remember, but all the way back in our very first study in Numbers chapter 1, I promised that I would not remind you over and over and over again how often the chapters and the narrative chunks in Numbers begin with the same phrase repeated. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, over and over again, you can find it more often than not, the driving rhythm behind uh, the march to the promised land is the word of God directing his people. 
telling them what they should do next, directing where they should go, showing them what they should desire and what they should want. And here, there is no divine word to be found. Instead, if you were opening up your Hebrew Bible, the very first word you would find in Numbers chapter 32 is cattle, cows, much livestock. That's how it begins. The whole situation begins with a problem. And the problem is, what in the world are we going to do with all of these animals? Lo and behold, a solution presents itself. And that solution was the rich pasture land east of the Jordan. And from chapter, uh, chapter 32, verses 1 to 5, that's about as deep as the reasoning gets. So you notice verse 4, they say, The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Problem A, meet solution B, case closed. Actually, it turns the old cliche on its head, right? You've heard the old wisdom, again, that tells you that there are some religious people that are so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. I posit you've never actually met anybody like that. They don't exist. However, you have met many people, many professing believers, who bear the spiritual lineage of Reuben and Gad. People who are so consumed with finding earthly answers to their earthly problems that they have no heart left over for God at all. Look, we've got cattle, and here's a good place for cattle. Well, that's where these tribes were coming from. The kicker comes in that final line, do not take us across the Jordan. Now, if Moses is being oversensitive, maybe that's the one that got to him. You remember, of course, that that was his judgment for his anger. The Lord said, you will not cross over the Jordan. And though he wanted it, though he desired it, though he prayed to the Lord, the Lord told him, speak no more to me of this. And he wants desperately to be in that promised land. And now here come those tribes and they go, meh, don't, don't take us over there. Just leave us here. It's all that we need. You see, the Jordan was the boundary line. It was the border between fulfillment and failure between enjoyment of God's covenant and contentment with the stuff that this world has to offer. And in verse 5, these two tribes are saying, in essence, we hear what the Lord is saying, but we're fine with what we've got. We'd rather settle for something less. We don't want what the Lord says is best, because what we've got is good enough. Oh, that was their request. Uh, in response, Moses gives this stinging rebuke. Now, probably the most obvious thing about Moses' argument is the way that it challenges us to think about the connections between our faith and the rest of God's people. Notice a summary in verses 14 and 15. Moses says, And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel, not against you, he says, against Israel. Verse 15, he says, for if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. I'll chalk it up, I suppose, to our American individualism. 
or put it in the category of uncomfortable truths that we like to pretend we don't have to deal with. But we like to think that our sins and our decisions, well, they only affect us. Moses, on the other hand, says that the, the leaders of Reuben and Gad, he says their decision to remain outside the promised land is going to set off a domino effect that's going to lead to the destruction of the entire nation. That's why, even in the beginning, in verse 6 and verse 7, when it looks like Moses is chiding them for their laziness, he's really telling them the effect that their complacency is going to have on their fellow pilgrims. Look back to verse 6. Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? He says that if Reuben and Gad sit on their hands across the Jordan, the hearts of the rest of the people will be discouraged. The word discouraged there actually means constrained, constricted hemmed in on every side so that it can't get out. It's the feeling you get in the doctor's office when they slip that blood pressure cuff on your arm and they start to squeeze the bulb and suddenly it's pressing in from all sides. Moses is saying that that's what these tribes are going to do to the rest of the people. Their complacency is going to squeeze the hope out of the hearts of their fellow believers. Psalm 119 gives us the opposite picture. Psalm 119, verse 32, it says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Another translation says, when you set my heart free. That's what the church of God needs. In order to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, we need big hearts, hearts that are set free to believe and rejoice in what the Lord is giving and promising to his people. We need hearts full of hope that what he has said he will do, he will surely bring to completion. And Moses is saying that if these two tribes throw in the towel on God's promise, not only will they miss out themselves, but it will mean the crushing hopes of all of God's people. You realize that still happens today, right? And you can watch it happening. Take a couple D-list former Christian celebrities and give them all social media platforms. Places where they can all get online together with all of their followers and they can begin posting about how they're all doing this wonderfully bold new thing called hashtag deconstructing their faith. Let them tell everybody how wonderfully freeing it is to reject the word of God instead to follow the winds of the culture. Give that whole mess space to breathe and multiply and sit back and you can watch a viral moment turn into a, max, a mass exodus. You can watch a handful of apostates become hundreds and thousands. You can watch a few influential people discourage the hearts of those who need to be nurtured in the faith rather than scandalized. You know this principle still happens today. And of course our individualistic bent pushes back and we say, yeah, that's fine, but, but you know, everybody is responsible to the Lord for themselves. That's true. That's true. But it's also true that the sins of one professing believer affect another. 
A few years ago at a presbytery meeting, we were having a pretty tense debate. All the pastors and the elders in southern New England were gathered around, and we were at that time dealing with the fallout of a particular pastoral scandal. Pastor Brad Evans, who has preached and ministered here before, said something in the midst of that debate that has been burned into my memory. He said, any man who accepts the weight of the pastoral office must also accept the fact that his sins will do more damage than other men's sins. And we know it to be true because we've watched it. And it's true when it comes to ministers, but we sometimes forget that it's true when it comes to members as well. The person next to you in the pew that you thought would never be paying attention to you somehow is affected by your decisions and your sin. Moses' first rebuke to these faithless tribes is that they need to consider the way that their decisions will affect the rest of the nation. His second rebuke is that no one has a right to reject what the Lord has called good for his people. You notice that in the midst of Moses' argument, he recounts the sin of the spies outside of Kadesh Barnea. You remember the story. We've recounted it several times ourselves through our studies. Twelve spies go in, and of those twelve men, only two come back, hopeful and ready to receive what the Lord is giving his people. In fact, that idea that what the Lord is giving his people is key in Moses' argument. You notice that three times he uses that Old Testament description of the land of Canaan between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. He says in verse 7, it is the land that the Lord has given them. Same phrase shows up in verse 9, the land that the Lord has given them. And then in verse 11, he actually quotes God himself. God called it the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is a threefold emphasis. Just like when you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and it tells you that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. So now Moses says this land is from God, it's from God, it's from God. It's his gift to the people. It's God himself who has set aside this land, this good gift prepared for his people, and he's warning them that it is not possible to reject the promises of God without also rejecting the God of those promises in the, in the process. That's why he began his discussion with a description of the land, but he moves very quickly to a description of what it means to either follow the Lord or to turn away from the Lord. Caleb and Joshua, he says, they have wholly followed the Lord. How did they do it? Well, they did it by attempting to enlarge the hearts of God's people to rejoice in what he was giving them. Caleb and Joshua followed the Lord when they tried to convince the people that what God was giving them was desirable, even while the other spies said, no, the land is going to eat you up. They followed the Lord by, by telling them that God was able to fulfill his word while the other spies said, you're all going to die in the process. Caleb and Joshua followed the Lord because they believed in the goodness of what God was giving his people. 
They believed that it far surpassed all the goodness of all of the garlic and the leeks and the fish that the people could have if they turned and went back to Egypt because that's all they would have gotten along with a bit more slavery. The things of this life. And Caleb and Joshua followed the Lord by saying, no, what he has promised is better than what you can get for yourselves. And Moses is now warning these tribes with that example. He's warning them not to call evil what God has called good. Not to reject the land that the Lord had set aside for his people. He's telling them that no one can reject the covenant promises of God and be held guiltless. Of course, people still try to do that today, don't they? Think about the true promised land. Think about the eternal rest and the the righteousness of God that the New Testament says this land of Canaan was actually pointing to. You can turn to Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4, and it'll tell you that Joshua brought the people across that boundary of the Jordan River. He brought them into Canaan, but he didn't actually bring them into the rest of God. Because the true rest of God is the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which gives us rest from pursuing our own righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe, says Paul. And when the gospel is proclaimed, the message goes out. Our Lord declares that in Christ Jesus, he has given us not just what is good, but what is best. He offers us in the gospel Christ crucified and buried and risen again. He calls us to the final end of our seemingly endless pursuit of of going after righteousness according to the works of the flesh. Instead, the gospel offers to us acceptance and adoption into God's family. It promises us full forgiveness that comes from the fact that all of our sins have been laid upon Christ and all of his righteousness has been credited to us. And so in the gospel, the Lord tells us that he has an inheritance kept waiting for us. A promised possession that is undefiled, that is unfading, that can never be lost, it can never be stolen, it can never be forfeited. And what do people do with those great promises of God? Well, some people reject them outright, right? They say, that, that's all superstition, it's all hogwash, I don't need any of it, no thank you. Other people say, oh, well, uh, that sounds interesting. Uh, that, that sounds pretty good, actually. I, I think I will think about that for a while. I think I'll ponder what you're telling me about sacrifice and forgiveness about a Savior who came into the world. And then they go on, they say, you know, I hear all that stuff, all that, all that sacrifice stuff, all that forgiveness stuff, but you know, what really attracts me about Jesus is his moral teaching. That's what gets me excited. And they say he was, he was such an enigma among men. He was such a powerful teacher. He was such a revolutionary lover of humankind. He was such a wonderful example of, of what it meant to come and to welcome outcasts, how to be a blessing to your neighbor. And they say, you know, I think that's probably enough for me. Of course, Jesus was all those things, wasn't he? 
He was God's love for humanity in the flesh. He was our perfect teacher. He was our greatest example. He was the blessing of Abraham to welcome nations of outsiders. He was all of those very good things. But if we content ourselves with just those very good things and we reject the promise of forgiveness in Christ Jesus, we really have not embraced the Son at all. We actually have said, no, I don't want what you're offering me. I don't want these promises of God. I've found something a little bit less, but, well, good enough. But the reality is it's not enough to have Jesus as your example if he's not also your substitute. It is not enough to have him as your teacher if you do not trust him as your high priest. It is not enough just to have enough of Jesus to make you feel a little more religious and a little bit more moral. It is not enough because what you really need is to believe that Jesus gives you a righteousness that you could never accomplish on your own. And by attempting to embrace only part of the good things that God has for his children, some people reject God's goodness altogether. Now dress that all up in Old Testament language and garments, and that is the warning that Moses is giving to these two tribes. The warning is not to settle for what is almost best. Not to settle for pretty good. He was telling them not to reject the Lord by rejecting what he had really promised. And so the tribes made their request. Moses gave his rebuke. And then the entire leadership of Israel arrives at a covenant compromise. Now, if you are like me, that word sends shivers down your spine. Compromise. Right? There are times when a compromise is okay. It's good. It's necessary. You're trying to buy a car, and you want the price to come down, and the dealer wants it to stay up, and you, you know you're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle anyway. It's just about who has to compromise more in which direction. But a compromise in some circumstances can be good. But if we apply compromise to theological matters, that's the kind of thing that makes a Presbyterian break out in hives. Right? We do not like to compromise with our doctrine. We refuse to believe that the Lord negotiates with sinners, and we certainly don't like to think that the boundaries of God's promises can be flexed to fit our expectations. But that last one, that actually seems to be what happened if you just follow the details of the text. So one modern commentator says that the Gadites and the Reubenites entered into negotiations to get what they wanted. Matthew Henry calls it an accommodation. Even Calvin said it was a middle way. It is a compromise by any other name. Now, if that arrangement leaves you feeling unsettled, it's worth pointing out that the compromise that these two tribes came to is not what we might call a compromise of subtraction. Not like what happens at the car dealer where you both give and you meet somewhere in the middle. Rather, this is what we could call a compromise of addition. I'm coining that phrase, but I'm going to 
I'm going to patent it later. I'm going to trademark it. It's going to be everywhere. A compromise of addition. It is not an either-or solution, but a both-and solution to this promise of the promised land. Notice that in Moses' rebuke, he leveled two very serious challenges against the tribes who wanted to settle east of the Jordan. Two challenges. The first challenge is that they must not despise the good gifts of God. Second challenge is that they must not discourage the hearts of God's people. That was his problem, his problems with uh, their, uh, their proposal. What Moses wanted, what he was arguing for, was the whole strength of the whole people of God pursuing the whole inheritance that the Lord has promised them. And so the tribes get together and they probably confer before they come back to Moses. And the solution that they offer is yes and. Compromise of addition. Yes, they say, the Lord's people should receive the promised land. In fact, verse 17, they say, we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them into their place. That language there, ready to go before them, it actually has a sense of urgency to it. Uh, if you go back and you follow out in, in Numbers chapter 4 and 5, where it's, it's giving us the marching orders for the camps, Reuben and Gad were supposed to be second in line when the battle array went out, and now they seem to be saying, send us at the front of the line. We're ready to lead the charge. We don't want to discourage the hearts of the people. We want to encourage them. We want to show them that, that what God is giving is worth having, actually. Send us out first. Yes, they're saying. Yes, they want to help the people of God receive their inheritance. And they also want to hold on to what the Lord has given them. So verse 19, they said, we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. That language of inheritance is important, of course. Moses had just said that this is the land that the Lord is giving to them. Yeah, they're going to have to go in, and yeah, they're going to have to fight, and yes, they're going to have to conquer, but essentially it's not something they're gaining for themselves. Moses is saying this land is yours by divine bequest. It is an inheritance from the Lord, and now they are saying yes. All that the Lord promised is good and right, and, you know, the Lord has already been more generous than we expected. Yes, we will go over and help the Lord's people. And when it's all said and done, we want to return here to the additional land that God has provided. Now, as a practical note, this is a wonderful testimony to the benefit of godly counsel. By the grace of God, Moses was able to speak some sense into this half-hearted bunch of selfish sinners. Notice that their minds seem actually to be changed. At first, they say, don't take us across the Jordan. We don't want to be a part of it. We don't want what's going on over there. We've got enough over here. And now their minds are changed. Yes, we will go over before them. We will lead the charge. We will take up arms for the cause of the Lord. You can imagine how easily they could have winced at Moses' rebuke. How easily they could have felt self-righteous and self-important and said, I don't want this advice that Moses is giving to us. Instead, they responded with humility. Their hearts were changed. They listened to what God's prophet had to tell them. And then they altered their approach rather than digging into the wrong direction. 
Let me say that you, dear Christian, ought to do the same. If you are facing some monumental decision point in your life, you don't know where to turn, you don't know what is best, what is good, what you ought to do, the first thing you should do is gather other mature believers that you trust actually know better than you do. And ask them, what should I do in this situation? Help me to figure out God's providence in my life. And then the second thing you should do is be willing to take the advice that you went looking for in the first place. Do you notice that seems to be what happens? There, there are several stages. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. It seems like they went to Moses privately first, and they said, let's think about this. Is there a way? And then they went to the rest of the leaders. Because they went to Moses with hearts that are willing to be changed. The significance there is that Moses is not just any old man. He is the prophet of God. They were inquiring of God's wisdom before they had a book of scriptures written down for them that they could carry around and, and every Sunday show up in church with their leather-bound copy of God's wisdom. They went to the prophet. And they said, please tell us how to tell the difference between God's promise and his providence. Moses, would you give us some wisdom so that we can steer our lives according to God's wisdom? And he gave them that wisdom, and they said, okay. Let's do that. Let's do what the Lord is telling us to do. And so that's what they did. They allowed their minds to be changed by the wisdom of God. And in the process, they proved that they, not, they were not really like their fathers. Their fathers were stubborn. And Caleb and Joshua came out and said, no, 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 we can receive this land. And they said, no, we cannot. Their fathers were unwilling to be changed. But these men, they are, as James puts it in the New Testament, they were pure, peaceable, open to reason. Basically, they were willing to let the word of God, through his prophet, expose where they were wrong and then turn them toward what was right. So then by the time we get to the end of verse 19, it's starting to sound like one big happy agreement. But Moses is not finished with them. So before he accepts their offer, he makes sure that they know exactly what they're signing up for. Read verses 20 to 23 again, and pay very close attention to that repeated phrase, before the Lord. It shows up four times. Verse 20, so Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for war, and every man armed for the battle will pass over the Lord Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. And after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure that your sin will find you out. Do you understand the argument? They had said, we are ready to pass over before Israel. We'll be at the front. We'll be the fighting force to be reckoned with. And Moses says, it's not Israel you have to be worried about. The promises you make, you make in the sight of God. The things you commit to, you commit to in the sight of God. And it's God himself who will hold you accountable to the truth of your convictions. Now the rest of this chapter, Moses takes the compromise that the tribes have offered and and they make it a covenant in the sight of all the leaders. Yet again, 
the word of God has an effect on his people. So you notice when the terms are read, the agreement is made, the tribes respond with Moses' language. They are taking seriously what God is telling them. Verses 31 and 32. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us in the Jordan. Now, the, the rest of the record of God's people tells us that that is exactly what they did. If you turn to Joshua later today, Joshua chapter 22. After the land is conquered, after the wars are over, and every man, it says, is sent back to his inheritance, the tribes of Reuben and Gad are sent back across the Jordan, back to their inheritance. They are sent back with the full blessing of the congregation. They are entrusted by the people of Israel into the land of their possession. And actually it has become now, by the grace of God, a land that is wider and larger than anyone anticipated at the beginning. That's the lesson that Calvin took from this passage. He said it is an emblem of God's mercy. He said it was a sign of his indulgence that the request that might have led to their judgment actually turned out in the end for their advantage. Brothers and sisters, we have an advantage far greater than the one that they had. And it comes from one who was willing to do what the Lord said was best, not what was easy or comfortable or, or satisfying in this life. Think about the, the temptation that was given to Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan came and he said, if you bow before me, you can have all of the kingdoms of this world. Think about the temptations in the wilderness. Think about the temptations outside of the wilderness. Think about how often it would have been easy for Jesus just to say, oh, you want to take me by force and make me your king? That sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. That's enough. Let's settle down here. Let's have, let's have one little kingdom here for just this little people. Let's enjoy ourselves while we can. Of course, he didn't do that because Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was something that was far better than just the things of this life. And he says, for those that will trust in me, I will press forward. I will go out as the vanguard. I will be the one who leads the charge. I will be the one who wins the battle that my people cannot win for themselves. And actually, in becoming our sacrifice, he, he proves that he is our perfect example. That what we also need to do when we live in that tension between what God calls us to believe and to, and to trust and to long for, when we live in the tension between that and what our lives are already full of, we need to follow him. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, we need to allow the word of God to direct what is best in our lives. In the end, that's what Reuben and Gad did. They allowed God's wisdom to change their minds. They allowed God's word to define what was best and what was only good enough. By the grace of God, may he give us that same blessing that we would allow him to change our minds, to set our hearts on what is best, not on only what is good enough. Let's pray together. Gracious God and King, we thank you that Christ our Lord did not stop at halfway measures, but he is the one who won the battle for all of your people, who became the sacrifice and the great high priest. 
We thank you that his righteousness is given to us, and we pray that you would cause us to press forward in faithfulness with him at our head. Father, thank you that he is the one who rules and restrains all of our and his enemies. Thank you for giving us a king who loves us and conquers on our behalf. Help us to follow him faithfully and to rejoice in all that you have promised to us through him. We pray in his name. Amen. come now to a table that proclaims to us the righteousness of God given to sinners through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This table is a table set with signs that are symbols of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and symbols and signs of his sacrifice for us. This table is set with bread that shows forth the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body broken and torn on the cross. This table is set with a cup it reminds us of the blood that he poured out for sinners on Calvary. Most of all, this table is set with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for all those who come and trust in him. It is set here with the things that we do not see. Even as our bodies interact with the bread and the cup, and even as we eat and drink, there is a spiritual reality going on behind that we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he welcomes us to himself. He gives us all the fellowship and the welcome that we don't have in ourselves. This is his blessing and his gift for all those that he draws to himself. The battle that he has won and conquered on our behalf. The promise here is that he will give us what is best. It would draw us to fellowship with himself and with one another. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this table and its promises are for you. As the elements are passed, eat and drink by faith, not merely receiving outwardly, but also spiritually and inwardly the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not yet trusted in the Lord, we ask you to allow the elements to pass. Don't eat and drink, as Paul says, judgment upon yourself. But consider whether the Lord may be calling you to him as well, calling you to believe in him and trust in his name and all of his great promises. We read in Mark's gospel that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are the one who draws us to yourself, who paves the way into fellowship in your family. Well, there is nothing that we can do to come before you, no righteousness that we can bring and offer. Yet here at this table, we're reminded that you have offered up the one who can give us that righteousness that we lack in ourselves. Thank you, Father, for the fullness of Christ. Fill us with him, we pray, and cause us to rejoice in all your promises, which are yes and amen in him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat, and do this in remembrance of me.
Reminder, there is gluten-free option uh, under the covered cups and uh, an alcohol-free option in the purple cups as the wine trays come by. Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you.
Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. Great and gracious God and King, we thank you for giving us your Son, that we might have life in you, in fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us, O Lord, by that same Spirit to so walk in faithfulness with you and trusting in you that we will see and rejoice in all of your promises fulfilled in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hymnal, number 599, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. Won't you stand as we sing? <laughs> 